Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. And this week, 10 years on from the Great East Japan earthquake, we hear two stories from Tohoku. Later in the episode, Reuters reporter Mari Saito tells the story of the phone of the wind, a place where survivors of the earthquake and tsunami can go to grieve for the relatives they lost. But first, I'm joined by the Japan Times' Alex Martin, who recently revisited the city of Ishinomaki to see how it's faring a decade after almost 4,000 of its residents perished in the tsunami. Alex Martin, welcome back to Deep Dive. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me. So last month, we travelled to Tohoku together to visit the city of Ishinomaki, 10 years on from the great East Japan earthquake. Could you describe that journey for me? Right. So I think it was、uh, early in February that we met up at Ueno Station at around 6 a.m. We、uh, took the Shinkansen up to Sendai, Tohoku's biggest city. And from there, we took the、uh, local Senseki line、uh, to Ishinomaki. The next station is Ishinomaki Terminal. And during the trip, I was looking out the window.、Um, I was trying to find、uh, traces of the disaster, which I couldn't really notice. Um, I mean, it's been 10 years, and、uh, most of the roads have been cleared up, cleaned up,、um, paved. You see the views of the ocean, and I was imagining you know, how the tsunami waves might have、uh, come in from, from this vantage point.、Um, but、uh, outwardly, I didn't really、uh, notice any major traces of the tsunami. We got off at Ishinomaki Station, and I was looking around to see any. Traces of uh, damage um, to the station and to the buildings uh, around the uh, the main rotary, which I did not notice. Um, I noticed the new Eon uh, supermarket was uh, installed inside a a big town hall building right outside Mm -hmm. the station. But yeah, it just looked like any other small. Inaka Station in in Japan reminded me of my mother's hometown in Suruoka. Looks just like it. Okay, yeah, so we, got, we just got off the train. What, what, what are you feeling? What are you seeing?、Uh, it's a strange、uh, sensation.、Um, I'm assuming a lot of the houses we're seeing right now are, were rebuilt after the tsunami.、Um, when I visited 10 years ago, we came by car. And why did you want to visit Ishinomaki in particular? Right, so、uh, 10 years ago, a few weeks after the、uh, 311 disaster,、uh, me and two other reporters from the Japan Times, we uh, uh, rented a car、um, and drove up to Tohoku. And every day we would、uh, visit different areas and check out、uh, you know, the situation, talk to the folks who,、uh, uh, who survived the tsunami. We visited evacuation centers. And, and I think one of those days we,、uh, we visited Mishinomaki. And the scene at Ishinomaki was just completely an utter mess. Um, it was like a wasteland or even like a war zone, perhaps.、Mm-hmm. Um, and the destruction I saw there was、uh, sort of, it really stood out compared to the other areas I visited、um, during that trip.、Um, and during the 10 years, I've、uh, revisited Tohoku on many occasions, but I didn't, never went back to Ishinomaki.、Um, I went up to Iwate, I went up to、uh, Fukushima. Uh, the, you know, near the reactors and you know, a whole bunch of different locations,、mm-hmm. but、uh, not Ishinomaki. So I thought it was a good chance to sort of revisit the,、uh, the city because my memory stopped, is, you know, it's frozen from 10 years ago. So I wanted to see how the city has、uh, reconstructed itself over the past decade. And could you describe that scene in a bit more detail,、um, the scene that was before you 10 years ago when you first visited Ishinomaki? Right. So I think we took a highway from Sendai to Ishinomaki, which is about an hour usually.、Um, but the roads were sort of clogged with uh, self defense force uh, trucks, uh, U.S. Army trucks, and all sorts of uh, uh, infrastructure related、uh, people like NTT Docomo,、uh, the gas company,、um, Tokyo Electric. So it's basically、um, just、uh, people working to sort of、uh, help out the,、uh, the whole area, plus journalists like myself. And once we arrived,、uh, we sort of drove by the,、uh, the coastal area. 
you would see, you know, giant fishing boats sort of like flung like toys <laughs> in the middle of the street. Mm. Um, just entire blocks completely crushed, shops, you know, glass particles everywhere, debris everywhere, mud everywhere. And they, there were volunteer workers, a lot of them actually uh, making their way into the city, handing out food um, and sort of digging out uh, uh, things for, you know, the residents, important stuff, because I think a lot of them sort of left their uh, um, belongings uh, in the rubble. So, yeah, it was quite a scene. Um, per, I think it was, I visited disaster zones um, after uh, the Tohoku disaster uh, in several different countries, but uh the scene I saw back then was uh, quite intense, <laughs> mm. even in that standard. Yeah. Mm. And just how badly was Ishinomaki actually affected by the earthquake and tsunami? Right. So uh, one in 40 residents uh, perished in the tsunami. That's around uh, a little over 3,700 people um, of Ishinomaki's total population, which was, was around 160,000 uh, a decade ago. So the entire death toll from the tsunami was uh, 18,500 or so. So roughly 20% of that came from Ishinomaki, which is by far the, uh, the highest number out of any municipality affected by the uh, disaster. 54,000 uh, homes were uh, damaged, um, some completely destroyed, some partially destroyed. I think aerial uh, footage of the, uh, the coastal area, you can find a lot of them online still. Um, and you can see entire blocks, entire sort of, uh, you know, kilometers and kilometers of uh, coastal area just completely washed away. So if that was the image you had of Ishinomaki as you last saw it, how was it going back after 10 years? It was a strange feeling. Um, <laughs> so the scenery that I that I the only scenery that I remember of Ishinomaki is basically destruction. So I don't know what Ishinomaki looked like before that. So it's sort of hard for me to sort of uh, uh, connect the dots when it comes to uh, this, the scenery that I saw this time and last time. I could vaguely sort of recall certain areas. Um, for example, the uh, the rotary of uh, Watanoha, which is a station on the local Ishinomaki line. Um, I reported there uh, 10 years ago, and the rotary was still there, um, obviously all cleaned up. You wouldn't see the mud and the, uh, the junk that was still lying around when I visited 10 years ago. Um, and the train line is working, very quiet little uh, train station. Um, but yeah, the 10 years ago, there were, you know, uh, groups of volunteers there handing out bento lunchboxes and people, you know, lining up to uh, pick up the food and run back to their family members to uh, hand them out to, you know, relatives and friends. So yeah, it's sort of a surreal feeling because uh, uh, it's, my memory is all about sort of just, a disastrous scenery of, you know, it was like a wasteland. Um, but now it's all cleaned up. Uh, there's new roads being built, new bridges uh, crossing over the uh, Kitakami River. Um, and obviously the giant seawall now um, that sort of blocks the view of the ocean. Right, Alex, where are we and what do you remember of this place? Right, we're uh, right by Watanoha Station. Here I met a couple of the folks that I talked to for my story. Uh, one's uh, Ryoko Kurosu, who's a local hairdresser. As part of your reporting, you tried to reconnect with some of the people you'd met when you first visited Ishinomaki a decade ago and find out how their lives had changed over that time. So who did you manage to actually reconnect with? So one of the folks I uh, managed to reconnect with um, was uh, Ryoko Kurosu, who's uh, a hairdresser. Since I 
I met her at uh, the aforementioned uh, Watanoha station a decade ago. She was one of the uh, uh, people who were lining up to pick up a bento box from a, a volunteer group. Back then, I recall she told me that uh, she was, her home was all right, um, but a lot of her relatives' uh, homes were destroyed, so around 20 or so of her uh, uh, family members or close relatives were staying at her home. That's quite a lot of people, obviously. And uh, she was really, every day she would go out and uh, try to pick up bento boxes, other food stuff. So she was out and about, and that's when I uh, bumped into her and I talked to her. So that's one of the folks. What was it like meeting her after... 10 years. How's she doing now? Right. So at that point, when we met uh, 10 years ago, her hairdresser was completely destroyed. Uh, She showed me photographs of the the destroyed um, salon uh, when I met with her last month and just completely obliterated um, by the tsunami. So her husband happened to have a uh, sort of an office building, uh, a one-story office building near Watanoha Station, actually. So she uh, moved her business over to this place and she started again. But still, Watanoha is a very quiet area now. Um, she told me that a lot of uh, the young residents have sort of moved uh, on to, uh, you know, uh, larger cities, perhaps. So the population was obviously graying and shrinking in the area that she was living in right now. So it was very quiet, and she said she doesn't get that many uh, uh, clients uh, during the day. So she usually spends a lot of time making her uh, craft work. Um, But she told me, I guess life in general has has resumed for her. Um, The relatives that she was helping out, I think they all returned to their own homes. Um, Her daughter-in-law's mother died uh, in the tsunami uh, disaster. Um, This was was immediately after the, uh, the, the quake. Um, but besides that, I don't think she lost any close family members, per se. She lost friends um, and sort of uh, distant relatives. Ten years ago, she was a little. She was in her 60s, and I think she's 73 now or something. So she's like a nice old obachan, um, <laughs> gray-haired, uh, very sort of uh, cheerful. And, yeah, when we talked to her last month, I, remember, I think Oscar, remember, she showed us uh, her uh, collection of these hanging uh, artwork, and she ended up giving us a few uh, as souvenirs. <laughs> so that's uh, sort of... At my home now. Yeah, she was really lovely. She was telling us actually that she usually puts on a big exhibition every spring where she welcomes in and gives away, I think, two thirds of all the crafts she makes each year. But she uh, she couldn't put on the event this year or last year because of COVID, right? Yeah. So every year during the Golden Week holidays in early May, she would uh, open her studio to the public and give away around two thirds of her thousands of uh, uh, these cloth figurines. Um, and that, that's, I think that's sort of become her uh, main sort of hobby and her main passion now. Uh, these tsurushikazari, uh, traditionally, they have uh, a symbolic meaning to sort of uh, repel evil or, you know, to pray for sound health. Um, so, which, you know, I, I assume being a survivor of one of the, the deadliest natural, natural disasters in Japan, she would want to sort of, uh, uh, that's the feeling that she has, that's the, the symbolic meaning that she, I think she uh, sort of uh, gives to these artworks that she makes. Mm-hmm. And who else did you manage to get in touch with who you'd talked to 10 years ago? So I was hoping to get in touch with a few doctors that I talked to um, at the uh, the Red Cross hospital that we visited. I googled their names, I tried to look up their uh, phone numbers, but I couldn't find 
any of them. Um, but the, another guy I managed to sort of reconnect with was uh, Nobukazu Endo, um, who is a, a piano tuner and also a local sort of music promoter. A decade ago, we visited his home, and on the premise of his home is a, a big studio, a wooden house pretty much, um, which was a concert hall slash studio for uh, recording artists. And he was uh, at that time trying to sort of renovate the whole place because it was damaged by the quake. Um, and he was telling me uh, a decade ago that uh, a famous live house uh, by the coastal area was completely destroyed. And he was very worried that uh, the musical scene in Ishinomaki was not going to be able to sort of come back. Um, but when we met him um, last month, he told me that uh, eventually there were sort of local sort of festivals, music festivals that uh, began. Live houses uh, started to, I guess you don't say live houses in, in English, right? Uh, live music venues. <laughs> in Japan, it's live houses. <laughs> anyway, so they started, uh, and, and his own sort of uh, concert hall as well, um, began inviting pretty famous artists like Yosuke Yamashita or uh, Akiko Yano. Um, so the scene was pretty much uh, back where it was before the disaster uh, until COVID hit. And then everything stopped again, he told me. Mm. So for both Kurosu and Endo, their lives had returned to some sense of normalcy 10 years on from the quake. I think so. I think so. But it will be a, it's a different story for people who actually lost their parents or wives or husbands or, or children. Um, for them, uh, 10 years is, I'm sure, not enough time to uh, get over something like that. Perhaps never. Um, but the, the folks I were able to reconnect this time, um, they hadn't lost any immediate uh, relatives, uh, thankfully. So it was a matter of, more of a matter of, I think, going back to work, rebuilding their homes, and, and sort of getting back, get their feet back on the ground, I guess. We're on top of uh, Hiyori-yama, which is a 50, 60 meter tall, I mean high uh, mound, right by the, uh, the Ishinomaki uh, coastal area. Uh, apparently when the tsunami hit, uh, a lot of folks came, climbed this uh, mound and uh, their lives were saved, but uh, they could see the huge waves rolling in and uh, wiping everything out. So while we were in Ishinomaki, we climbed a hill called Hiroriyama, where you can get a panoramic view over the city. You can see the Minamihama coastal area, which was the most damaged part of the city by the tsunami, where they're building the new memorial park and also the massive seawall that now extends along the entire seafront. But if you kind of turn and face the other direction and look inland from that hill, you can actually see a pretty normal looking city centre. There's still a fair bit of construction going on, but you know, if you didn't know that there had been a tsunami, you might not be able to tell now that it's been a decade since the event. So how much money has been spent helping Ishinomaki rebuild over the last decade? Um, well, according to an estimate by uh, the Asahi Shimbun, um, I think almost two trillion yen was spent on Ishinomaki. Uh, over the past decade. The entire budget um, the, the government has allocated for Tohoku disaster reconstruction was uh, around 31.3 trillion yen. And that's around 300 billion US dollars, right? Yeah, it's an enormous sum. And, uh, and quite a lot has of that has been invested in Ishinomaki, um, mostly in infrastructure projects, I think. So the issue with Ishinomaki, as with any other Japanese town, was that it was graying, its population was falling, its economy was uh, not doing very well. 
um, before the disaster. And then disaster struck, and a whole lot of money was poured in to sort of uh, revive its uh, outward appearance, at least. But then um, I think the uh, the core issue that the Ishinomaki uh, harbored from even before the disaster, which is a shrinking population, um, ingraying population, I think that issue has yet to be tackled uh, in any significant way. And I'm not sure uh, if how much of the funds um, have actually been used to sort of uh, promote that kind of sort of soft power programs. Um, but we did talk to a couple of uh, folks from a, a local sort of project called Ishinomaki 2.0. And what's Ishinomaki 2.0 doing? So Ishinomaki 2.0 is uh, a local initiative uh, launched by, uh, or launched or headed by a man called uh, Gota Matsumura, who's a Ishinomaki native and who, after the disaster, was discussing with friends and volunteers what they can do to sort of bring back uh, vibrancy and uh, creativity to the city. And they gathered um, a bunch of folks, both from Ishinomaki and from outside Ishinomaki, architects, web designers, various uh, talents, and they launched a, a free paper called Ishinomaki Voice, which basically focuses on uh, residents of Ishinomaki and their own experiences uh, during the uh, earthquake, tsunami. And uh, they uh, made a bar called the Fuku Bar, reconstruction bar, from a uh, dilapidated flooded uh, shop in the city center. Uh, they've also uh, been sort of running programs to uh, lure outside people to basically come migrate to Ishinomaki to sort of uh, stem the uh, depopulation of the city. And they've been sort of involved in various projects. Uh, Matsumura was also sort of key in uh, realizing the uh, the Reborn Art Festival, um, which is a big art festival uh, founded by uh, Takeshi Kobayashi, a prominent uh, musician. So they've been basically focusing on how to sort of uh, bring back um, energy and livelihood um, in the city through sort of human interaction and um, creative programs. Mm-hmm. And are these programs succeeding? Yeah, as far as uh, I could tell, um, they had quite a, a big crowd of people on board to uh, move these various uh, programs and projects forward. There, were, there was a lot of uh, events um, coming up, even during the pandemic. Um, and yeah, Matsumura told me that you know the, the point of the whole project is not for it to become like a one-off sort of project, but something that can be done uh, sustain- sustainably um, for on, you know, on and on and on, so as to create sort of a an enduring sort of vibe for the city to maintain you know this sense of energy, um, so that the the city can stand on its own two feet. Yeah, it's uh, I mean we see a photograph of uh, how the the coast area looked before the tsunami, and then we have. The actual scenery of what's happening now and uh, a lot of concrete uh, there's a new bridge uh, and then we see the memorial park under construction um, it's just all very great from the top of Hiroriyama, we could see all the ongoing construction the tail end of this decade-long period of reconstruction and all the money going into the city since the earthquake but from here on out what challenges do the people of Ishinomaki face going forward right I think in terms of infrastructure, most of the work has been done. Um, According to an estimate by the Asahi, uh, almost 2 trillion yen was invested in Ishinomaki alone. And it was used to build the seawalls, the roads, the the bridges, um, various construction work that happened uh, in the city. So most of that's done, but that funding is going to significantly fall starting uh, this fiscal year. I think from the five years from now, it's uh, the amount's going to be 1.6 trillion yen. And that's 1.6 trillion yen that's going 
toward the entirety of the Tohoku region over the next five years, not just to Ishinomaki. So it's a huge budget cut, effectively, for them. Yeah. So from now on, I think the main issue uh, for towns like Ishinomaki is to uh, basically survive on its own. Um, as mentioned before, Ishinomaki was plagued by uh, uh, depopulation and aging, aging shrinking uh, population like any other town in Japan. Its economy wasn't doing that well as well. So I think the issue now is to sort of uh, be able to stand on its own, to create new lines of uh, businesses, uh, work for people. Um, and for that, I think the city needs to be interesting. And that's where people like uh, Gota Matsumura and Ishinomaki 2.0 come in to sort of create that originality and uh, um, new ideas that actually uh, lures people from outside um, to the city. Some of the issues that I've heard, uh, we talked to uh, the COO of uh, Ishinomaki Laboratory, which is a furniture maker. Um, the owner was Chiba-san, who was a former sushi chef. And his sushi restaurant still uh, in downtown Ishinomaki, but he told me that uh, 70% of the, uh, the customers are construction workers. Once that uh, is finished, and that's going to wrap up quite, quite soon, actually, the fiscal year ends this month, and uh, I think a lot of the construction workers are going to be gone by then. He says, you know, how, how would restaurants like his uh, sushi restaurant uh, get business if uh, a majority of their customers are gone? And things like that. Um, I think it's a new rea- reality that uh, Ishinomaki needs to sort of get used to. Um, I think the past 10 years, as some put it, was, you know, they were on steroids pretty much. A lot of money was pouring in, a lot of people were coming in, um, you know, a lot of confusion ensued, and, you know, things were always moving around. But I think as things get more quiet, um, they're going to have to face the same issues that a lot of uh, towns in Japan are already facing. So it sounds like what you found is that Ishinomaki is ultimately undergoing this transition from a city that has been for the last 10 years defined by the earthquake and the tsunami and the money that's been coming in for reconstruction and recovery to a city that's now facing most of the same challenges that other depopulating and aging cities around Japan are also facing. Yeah, exactly. And and I think Ishinomaki has an advantage. It's so close to Sendai, which is a, uh, a major um, hub in Tohoku. It has, you know, gorgeous uh, seafood and a, and a very thriving uh, fishing industry and, you know, a very long history, a lot of traditions. Uh, they have a, a major festival um, every year uh, that gathers, you know, a lot of, lot of people. So I think, you know, sort of uh, maintaining that heritage, um, that advantage, plus working on new ideas to uh, let Ishinomaki's name be known um, in Japan and perhaps even in the world, um, by doing these festivals um, and uh, art projects. And I think all these combined, um, I think Ishinomaki does have, you know, a very strong advantage uh, to sort of survive on its own moving forward. So I'm looking forward to coming back again, maybe five, ten years from here, or maybe even sooner, (laughs) (laughs) to see how the uh, the city's doing. That was Alex Martin, and his article on Ishinomaki is linked in the show notes. Now I'm joined by Reuters reporter Mari Saito, who recently put out a beautiful photo essay with her colleague Issei Kato about a phone box in Tohoku, known as the Phone of the Wind. Mari Saito, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. So could you tell me, what is the Phone of the Wind? 
Sure.、Um, the phone of the wind is this cute vintage white phone box that is built in this garden in Otsuji, which is a, a city in Iwate Prefecture, which was hit badly by the tsunami in 2011. And it's a disconnected phone, basically, where survivors of the tsunami or anybody really having going through grief or bereavement can make a phone call to their loved ones, right on top of the. Phone box is this beautiful cherry tree that hadn't bloomed yet when we were there, and it's in the middle of this really lovely English style garden. But yeah, it's just a beautiful scene. It used to overlook the ocean, but now there's a a major highway <laughs> <laughs> built right in front of it, which is extremely Japanese, I think, almost. But、um, it's just a hilltop garden. It's it's a very beautiful place. So, who set up this phone booth, and why did they set it up? So set up by、um, Itaru Sasaki, who、um, his cousin died quite suddenly from cancer. This is before the tsunami and the earthquake, and he thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have a place where people grieving from a sudden loss can go and talk to their loved ones? So initially, he built it for his cousin's family and for himself, and he built it before the tsunami. And I don't think he ever expected that you know so many people、uh, would connect with it and that it would resonate with so many people. And now I believe the latest figure was thirty thousand people have, had used it. And in the most functional way possible, could you describe how people actually interact with the phone booth? Sure, sure. So you go into the phone box. It's got a glass door. You go inside and you stand there, and there's a little. Black old—I don't know what you call it. It's like a wind-up phone. I, mm. I don't know. My grandmother used to have it, but it's one of those old phones, and it's clearly disconnected. And you pick up the—you know—you pick up the handle, and then you dial your loved one's number, and then you talk into the phone. And inside the phone box, there are—you know—poems written by the owner Sasaki-san, telling people to feel free to express their emotions, to tell their loved ones how they feel. That it's kind of a no judgment zone,、mm. um, counseling without a counselor kind of thing. After you finish talking on the phone, if you choose to, you can write in a notebook that's right next to the black phone, where people have left messages for their loved ones or to other people, you know, encouraging people to kind of talk through their grief. And yeah, it's extremely moving. And during your reporting, you managed to speak and photograph people using the phone box. What were their stories? How were they grieving, and how were they using the phone to do so? I think it really depends. I mean, even when we were there, there were a few people who came and you know didn't want to be photographed, and it's obviously a private space, so we weren't going to, you know,、um, infringe on that. But the people we managed, we talked to, they go there on special occasions, birthdays, or when they've you know moved out of temporary housing finally, or. Their grandkids are born, or you know, some some kind of life event.、Mm-hmm. Um, they go there to report, just kind of let their loved ones know what had happened. Kazuyoshi Sasaki, who is the local councilman in Rikuzen Takata, who I've known for several years, actually, I think he said initially he'd gone a couple of times, just in the midst of that initial like overwhelming grief after the tsunami, after losing his wife. And now, you know, ten years on, it's more of kind of a checking in.、Mm-hmm. And the other woman、um, that we spoke to, Okawa-san, she goes there with his with her grandchildren, and she said it's just a healing experience for the children as well to just kind of be able to have this connection with their grandfather. 
And for her, she did say at one point to me that it felt like she could hear him on the other end. And that, that's kind of the really interesting thing about the phone is that there is something very unusual about standing in a room by yourself and having to kind of express yourself. And I think for a lot of people, especially in these disaster hit zones where, you know, I'm not sure about the statistics about how many people are in grief counseling, but I'm sure it's rare to have a space like that. You know, it's kind of like a confessional. Mm -hmm. And this might be a bit personal, so you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but did you actually try using the phone while you were there? Yeah, I did actually. And it was, um, so Sasaki-san, the, the man in the photo who I've known for quite a few years, suggested that I use it. And obviously I finished all my reporting and it's not something that I would normally do. But I think that, I mean, you know, grief is universal. I think everyone is going to lose someone or have lost someone. And the pandemic has been particularly hard. And I, and I lost someone who was very important to me right before the pandemic. So I used the phone and it was extremely difficult, actually. It's, it's fascinating. Um, there is something very uh, powerful about having to like stand in this <laughs> box. Um, I'm laughing now, but it, it is kind of a, a very emotional experience. And um, actually dialing the numbers yourself is also kind of an interesting experience because it makes you kind of think about the last time you talked to that person. Mm. And um, yeah, I'm really glad that um, I was encouraged, actually, you know, very kind uh, people who have interviewed, you know, encouraged me to also try and use it. And mm. I think I, that gave me kind of a different perspective on why it's so helpful. Mm. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you lost someone important to you. But I think what you were saying just there raises an interesting point as well, because we are currently in a new, very heavy moment of grief, I think, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So has the phone of the wind taken on any kind of new significance as the pandemic has continued over the last year? I think, you know, um, Itada-san said um, that he had been contacted by organisers in Europe, I think particularly in the UK and Poland, who wanted to build similar phones precisely so that and people who had lost their relatives or family members or, you know, friends to the pandemic can make those calls. This story about the phone of the wind is, is it resonates whenever, you know, it resurfaces. But I think particularly now, we've, you know, experienced this unprecedented pandemic where we've had to change our lifestyle so drastically. In many ways, it has isolated people from their families, from their friends. And it has also kind of brought about extremely sudden deaths. And I think that's what, you know, the owner of the garden has said all along is that when you have time, you know, months and months of caring for a loved one or an elderly loved one where you're able to have these conversations, I'm not saying it's easier necessarily, but it's it's a different kind of grief from losing something so suddenly. And I think uh, the fact that this article and the, you know, the photos have really resonated to me shows that there is just kind of a universal need for this right now. You know, I think people are really looking for a way out of kind of processing everything that's happened in the last year. Well, Mary, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Mary Saito, and I'll link her photo essay in the show notes if you'd like to see the photos of the phone of the wind and the people she just spoke about. 
And if you'd like to read more about the 10th anniversary of 3.11, please do visit the Japan Times website where my colleagues have been covering everything from how the earthquake changed seismology to how the nuclear meltdown at Fukushima has slowed Japan's progress towards carbon neutrality. That's it for this week's show. Thank you both to Mari and to Alex for joining me today. And thank you for listening in. Until next time, Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.